0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group void were prohibited by law. See Terms and Conditions 18 plus. Chapter 15 of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter 15 The Widow's Suitors. Mr. Slope lost no time in availing himself of the Bishop's permission to see Mr. Quifferful and it was in his interview with this worthy pastor that he first learned that mrs bold was worth the wooing he rode out to puddingdale to communicate to the embryo warden the good-will of the bishop in his favour and during the discussion on the matter it was not unnatural that the pecuniary resources of mr harding and his family should become the subject of remark mr quiverfall with his fourteen children and his four hundred a year was a very poor man and the prospect of this new preferment which was to be held together with his living was very grateful to him to what clergyman so circumstanced would not such a prospect be very grateful but mr quiverful had long been acquainted with mr harding and had received kindness at his hands so that his heart misgave him as he thought of supplanting a friend at the hospital nevertheless he was extremely civil cringingly civil to mr slope treated him quite as the great man entreated this great man to do him the honour to drink a glass of sherry at which as it was very poor marsala the now pampered slope turned up his nose and ended by declaring his extreme obligation to the bishop and mr slope and his great desire to accept the hospital if if it were certainly the case that mr harding had refused it what man as needy as mr quiverful would have been more disinterested mr harding did positively refuse it said mr slope with a certain air of offended dignity when he heard of the conditions to which the appointment is now subjected of course you understand mr quiverful that the same conditions will be imposed on yourself mr quiverful cared nothing for the conditions he would have undertaken to preach any number of sermons mr slope might have chosen to dictate and to pass every remaining hour of his sundays within the walls of a sunday school what sacrifices or at any rate what promises would have been too much to make for such an addition to his income and for such a house but his mind still recurred to mr harding to be sure said he mr harding's daughter is very rich and why should he trouble himself with the hospital you mean mrs grantly said slope i meant his widowed daughter said the other. Mrs Bold has twelve hundred a year of her own, and I suppose Mr Harding means to live with her. Twelve hundred a year of her own, said Slope, and very shortly afterwards took his leave, avoiding, as far as it was possible for him to do, any further allusion to the hospital. Twelve hundred a year said he to himself as he rode slowly home if it were the fact that mrs bold had twelve hundred a year of her own what a fool would he be to oppose her father's return to his old place the train of mr slope's ideas will probably be plain to all my readers why should he not make the twelve hundred a year his own and if he did so would it not be well for him to have a father-in-law comfortably provided with the good things of this world would it not moreover be much more easy for him to gain the daughter if he did all in his power to forward the father's views these questions presented themselves to him in a very forcible way, and yet there were many points of doubt. If he resolved to restore to Mr. Harding his former place, he must take the necessary steps for doing so at once. He must immediately talk over the bishop, quarrel on the matter with Mrs. Proudie, whom he knew he could not talk over and let mr quiverful know that he had been a little too precipitate as to mr harding's positive refusal that he could effect all this he did not doubt but he did not wish to effect it for nothing he did not wish to give way to mr harding and then be rejected by the daughter he did not wish to lose one influential friend before he had gained another and thus he rode home meditating many things in his mind it occurred to him that mrs bold was sister-in-law to the archdeacon and that not even for twelve hundred a year would he submit to that imperious man a rich wife was a great desideratum to him but success in his profession was still greater there were moreover other rich women who might be willing to become wives and after all this twelve hundred a year might when inquired into melt away into some small sum utterly beneath his notice then also he remembered that mrs bold had a son another circumstance also much influenced him though it was one which may almost be said to have influenced him against his will the vision of the signora neroni was perpetually before his eyes it would be too much to say that mr slope was lost in love but yet he thought and kept continually thinking that he had never seen so beautiful a woman he was a man whose nature was open to such impulses and the wiles of the italianized charmer had been thoroughly successful in imposing upon his thoughts we will not talk about his heart not that he had no heart but because his heart had little to do with his present feelings his taste had been pleased his eyes charmed and his vanity gratified he had been dazzled by a sort of loveliness which he had never before seen and had been caught by an easy free voluptuous manner which was perfectly new to him he had never been so tempted before and the temptation was now irresistible. He had not owned to himself that he cared for this woman more than for others around him, but yet he thought often of the time when he might see her next, and made almost unconsciously little cunning plans for seeing her frequently. He had called at Dr Stanhope's house the day after the bishop's party, and then the warmth of his admiration had been fed with fresh fuel if the signora had been kind in her manner and flattering in her speech when lying upon the bishop's sofa with the eyes of so many on her she had been much more so in her mother's drawing-room with no one present but her sister to repress either her nature or her art Mr. Slope had thus left her quite bewildered, and could not willingly admit into his brain any scheme, a part of which would be the necessity of his abandoning all further special friendship with this lady. And so he slowly rode along, very meditative. And here the author must beg it to be remembered that Mr. Slope was not in all things a bad man his motives like those of most men were mixed and though his conduct was generally very different from that which we would wish to praise it was actuated perhaps as often as that of the majority of the world by a desire to do his duty he believed in the religion which he taught harsh unpalatable uncharitable as that religion was he believed those whom he wished to get under his hoof the Grantleys and Gwyns of the church to be the enemies of that religion he believed himself to be a pillar of strength destined to do great things and with that subtle selfish ambiguous sophistry to which the minds of all men are so subject he had taught himself to think that in doing much for the promotion of his own interests he was doing much also for the promotion of religion but mr slope had never been an immoral man indeed he had resisted temptations to immorality with a strength of purpose that was creditable to him he had early in life devoted himself to works which were not compatible with the ordinary pleasures of youth and he had abandoned such pleasures not without a struggle it must therefore be conceived that he did not admit to himself that he warmly admired the beauty of a married woman without heartfelt stings of conscience and to pacify that conscience he had to teach himself that the nature of his admiration was innocent and thus he rode along meditative and ill at ease his conscience had not a word to say against his choosing the widow and her fortune that he looked upon as a godly work rather than otherwise as a deed which if carried through would redound to his credit as a christian on that side lay no future remorse no conduct which he might probably have to forget no inward stings if it should turn out to be really the fact that mrs bold had twelve hundred a year at her own disposal mr slope would rather look upon it as a duty which he owed his religion to make himself the master of the wife and the money as a duty too in which some amount of self-sacrifice would be necessary he would have to give up his friendship with the signora his resistance to mr harding his antipathy no he found on mature self-examination that he could not bring himself to give up his antipathy to dr grantly he would marry the lady as the enemy of her brother-in-law if such an arrangement suited her if not she must look elsewhere for a husband it was with such resolve as this that he reached barchester he would at once ascertain what the truth might be as to the lady's wealth having done this he would be ruled by circumstances in his conduct respecting the hospital if he found that he could turn round and secure the place for mr harding without much self-sacrifice he would do so and if not he would woo the daughter in opposition to the father but in no case would he succumb to the archdeacon he saw his horse taken round to the stable and immediately went forth to commence his inquiries to give mr slope his due he was not a man who ever let much grass grow under his feet poor eleanor she was doomed to be the intended victim of more schemes than one about the time that mr slope was visiting the vicar of puddingdale a discussion took place respecting her charms and wealth at dr stanhope's house in the close there had been morning-callers there and people had told some truth and also some falsehood respecting the property which john bold had left behind him by degrees the visitors went and as the doctor went with them and as the doctor's wife had not made her appearance charlotte stanhope and her brother were left together he was sitting idly at the table scrawling caricatures of barchester notables then yawning then turning over a book or two and evidently at a loss how to kill his time without much labour you haven't done much bertie about getting any orders said his sister orders said he who on earth is there at barchester to give one orders who among the people here could possibly think it worth his while to have his head done into marble then you mean to give up your profession said she no i don't said he going on with some absurd portrait of the bishop look at that lotty isn't it the little man all over apron and all i'd go on with my profession at once as you call it if the governor would set me up with a studio in london but as to sculpture at barchester i suppose half the people here don't know what a torso means the governor will not give you a shilling to start you in london said lottie indeed he can't give you what would be sufficient for he has not got it but you might start yourself very well if you pleased Alfred am i to do it said he to tell you the truth bertie you'll never make a penny by any profession that's what i often think myself said he not in the least offended some men have a great gift of making money but they can't spend it others can't put two shillings together but they have a great talent for all sorts of outlay i begin to think that my genius is wholly in the latter line how do you mean to live then asked the sister i suppose i must regard myself as a young raven and look for heavenly manner. besides we have all got something when the governor goes yes you'll have enough to supply yourself with gloves and boots that is if the jews have not got the possession of it all I believe they have the most of it already. I wonder, Bertie, at your indifference, that you, with your talents and personal advantages, should never try to settle yourself in life. I look forward with dread to the time when the governor must go. Mother and Madeline and I, we shall be poor enough, but you will have absolutely nothing. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof, said Bertie. Will you take my advice, said his sister? Cela dépend, said the brother. Will you marry a wife with money at any rate, said he. I won't marry one without wives with money aren't so easy to get nowadays. The parsons pick them all up, and a parson will pick up the wife I mean for you if you do not look quickly about it. The wife I mean is Mrs. Bold <whistles> whistled Bertie a widow she is very beautiful said charlotte with a son and heir already to my hand said bertie a baby that will very likely die said charlotte i don't see that said bertie but however he may live for me i don't wish to kill him only it must be owned that a ready-made family is a drawback there is only one after all pleaded charlotte and that very little one as the maid-servant said rejoined bertie beggars mustn't be choosers bertie you can't have everything god knows i am not unreasonable said he nor yet opinionated and if you'll arrange it all for me lottie i'll marry the lady Only mark this the money must be sure and the income at my own disposal at any rate for the lady's life charlotte was explaining to her brother that he must make love for himself if he meant to carry on the matter and was encouraging him to do so by warm eulogiums on eleanor's beauty when the signora was brought into the drawing-room when at home and subject to the gaze of none but her own family she allowed herself to be dragged about by two persons and her two bearers now deposited her on her sofa she was not quite so grand in her apparel as she had been at the bishop's party but yet she was dressed with much care and though there was a look of care and pain about her eyes she was even by daylight extremely beautiful well madeline so i'm going to be married bertie began as soon as the servants had withdrawn there's no other foolish thing left that you haven't done said madeline and therefore you are quite right to try that oh you think it's a foolish thing do you said he there's lotty advising me to marry by all means but on such a subject your opinion ought to be the best you have experience to guide you yes i have said madeline with a sort of harsh sadness in her tone which seemed to say what is it to you if i am sad i have never asked your sympathy bertie was sorry when he saw that she was hurt by what he said and he came and squatted on the floor close before her face to make his peace with her come mad i was only joking you know that but in sober earnest lottie is advising me to marry she wants me to marry this mrs bold she's a widow with lots of tin a fine baby a beautiful complexion and the georgian dragon hotel up in the high street by jove lottie if i marry her i'll keep the public-house myself it's just the life to suit me what said madeline that vapid swarthy creature in the widow's cap who as though her clothes had been stuck on her back with a pitchfork the signora never allowed any woman to be beautiful instead of being vapid said lottie i call her a very lovely woman she was by far the loveliest woman in the rooms the other night that is excepting you madeline even the compliment did not soften the asperity of the maimed beauty every woman is charming according to lottie she said i never knew an eye with so little true appreciation in the first place what woman on earth could look well in such a thing as that she had on her head of course she wears a widow's cap but she'll put that off when bertie marries her i don't see any of course in it said madeline the death of twenty husbands should not make me undergo such a penance it is as much a relic of paganism as the sacrifice of a Hindu woman at the burning of her husband's body if not so bloody it is quite as barbarous and quite as useless but you don't blame her for that said bertie she does it because it's the custom of the country people would think ill of her if she didn't do it Exactly, said Madeline. She is just one of those English nonentities who would tie her head up in a bag for three months every summer if her mother and her grandmother had tied up their heads before her. It would never occur to her to think whether there was any use in submitting to such a nuisance. It's very hard in a country like England for a young woman to set herself in opposition to prejudices of that sort said the prudent Charlotte. What you mean is that it's very hard for a fool not to be a fool, said Madeline. Bertie Stanhope had been so much knocked about the world from his earliest years that he had not retained much respect for the gravity of English customs, but even to his mind an idea presented itself that perhaps in a wife true British prejudice would not in the long run be less agreeable than anglo-italian freedom from restraint he did not exactly say so but he expressed the idea in another way i fancy said he that if i were to die and then walk i should think that my widow looked better in one of those caps than any other kind of head dress. yes and you'd fancy also that she could do nothing better than shut herself up and cry for you or else burn herself. But she would think differently. She'd probably wear one of those horrid she-helmets because she'd want the courage not to do so, but she'd wear it with a heart longing for the time when she might be allowed to throw it off. I hate such shallow, false pretences. For my part, I would let the world say what it pleased, and show no grief if I felt none and perhaps not if i did but wearing a widow's cap won't lessen her fortune said charlotte or increase it said madeline then why on earth does she do it but lottie's object is to make her put it off said bertie if it be true that she has got twelve hundred a year quite at her own disposal and she be not utterly vulgar in her manners i would advise you to marry her i dare say she's to be had for the asking and as you are not going to marry her for love it doesn't much matter whether she is good-looking or not as to your really marrying a woman for love i don't believe you are fool enough for that oh madeline exclaimed her sister and oh charlotte said the other you don't mean to say that no man can love a woman unless he be a fool i mean very much the same thing that any man who is willing to sacrifice his interest to get possession of a pretty face is a fool pretty faces are to be had cheaper than that i hate your mawkish sentimentality lottie you know as well as i do in what way husbands and wives generally live together you know how far the warmth of conjugal affection can withstand the trial of a bad dinner of a rainy day or of the least privation which poverty brings with it you know what freedom a man claims for himself what slavery he would exact from his wife if he could and you know also how wives generally obey marriage means tyranny on one side and deceit on the other i say that a man is a fool to sacrifice his interests for such a bargain a woman too generally has no other way of living but bertie has no other way of living said charlotte then in god's name let him marry mrs bold said madeline and so it was settled between them but let the gentle-hearted reader be under no apprehension whatsoever it is not destined that eleanor shall marry mr slope or bertie stanhope and here perhaps it may be allowed to the novelist to explain his views on a very important point in the art of telling tales he ventures to reprobate that system which goes so far to violate all proper confidence between the author and his readers by maintaining nearly to the end of the third volume a mystery as to the fate of their favourite personage nay more and worse than this is too frequently done have not often the profoundest efforts of genius been used to baffle the aspirations of the reader to raise false hopes and false fears and to give rise to expectations which are never to be realised are not promises all but made of delightful horrors in lieu of which the writer produces nothing but most commonplace realities in his final chapter and is there not a species of deceit in this to which the honesty of the present age should lend no countenance and what can be the worth of that solicitude which a peep into the third volume can utterly dissipate what the value of those literary charms which are absolutely destroyed by their enjoyment when we have once learnt what was that picture before which was hung mrs ratcliffe's solemn curtain we feel no further interest about either the frame or the veil they are to us merely a receptacle for old bones an inappropriate coffin which we would wish to have decently buried out of our sight. And then how grievous a thing it is to have the pleasure of your novel destroyed by the ill-considered triumph of a previous reader. Oh, you needn't be alarmed for Augusta. Of course she accepts Gustavus in the end. How very ill-natured you are, Susan, says Kitty, with tears in her eyes. I don't care a bit about it now. Dear Kitty, if you will read my book you may defy the ill-nature of your sister there shall be no secret that she can tell you nay take the third volume if you please learn from the last pages all the results of our troubled story and the story shall have lost none of its interest if indeed there be any interest in it to lose our doctrine is that the author and the reader should move along together in full confidence with each other let the personages of the drama undergo ever so complete a comedy of errors among themselves but let the spectator never mistake the syracusan for the ephesian otherwise he is one of the dupes and the part of a dupe is never dignified I would not for the value of this chapter have it believed by a single reader that my Eleanor could bring herself to marry Mr. Slope, or that she should be sacrificed to a Bertie Stanhope. But among the good folk of Barchester, many believed both the one and the other. End of chapter fifteen. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom.